can't sit in the darkness forever. We have to light some lamps. We have to open some shades. We have to let go of our fear and let the light back in. I know, I know, but I'm just not sure it's safe yet. My guess is they are still searching for us. We were his closest followers. Matthew and Thomas are heading up north for a season. They are leaving the region until things calm down. That's not a bad idea, Peter. We could take our fishing boats north for a while. I hear the fishing is good in those parts. Ah, James. We could never leave town quietly enough with our fishing boats. We have them in storage, and it would be way too much hassle. I don't know what the answer is, but we must lay low till we figure things out. Still, Peter, we need to let some light in. It's been three days of darkness. <laughs> let some light in. Oh, the irony. The irony? The irony of what? Well, what did he call himself? Who? Jesus! Who did Jesus say he was? He called himself the light of the world. Well, it looks like God has turned out the lights. You got that right, James. Speaking of darkness, that afternoon on the cross when the lights went out, when the darkness descended, I've never seen it that dark at midday before. I'm not sure I've ever even seen it that dark at midnight even. Yeah, that was wild. Where did the sun go? Where did such darkness come from? Darkness? You call that darkness? That's when hell took over. That's what that was, brothers. Satan was laughing in our faces. Hell came to earth and hell won. We lost. I'm not sure how, but we lost. Yes. How did we lose? Remember all those amazing miracles that he performed? Like when he fed all those people with that handful of fish and loaves? Or turned that water into wine? There was that time he healed that blind man's eye. The time he calmed the storm at sea. Or even the transfiguration. I mean, he even rose Lazarus from the dead. Guys, just stop it. Stop living in the past like it meant something. We need to get with the present. It's only a matter of time before they come for us. Maybe we should leave town tonight in the dark. They're here. They're here already, just as I told you. No, wait. That sounds like, that sounds like Mary. You must stop her. She's going to get us all killed. The tomb! The tomb! It's empty! There's more! 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 More to the story! More than meets the eye! More than one might think. More than you'd believe. There's, There's more to the, to the story. story. More than the lies. Oh, someone stole his body. Someone stole his body? No, no one stole his body. There's more to the story. 
More than the fear. Our lives are over. All hope is lost. What will we do? All is not lost, and your lives are not over. There's more to the story. More than the questions. Who will roll aside the stone? Yes, who will roll aside the stone? Who will let us in? Wait, who has let him out? No one let him out, and no one took him away. There's more to the story. More than the pain. It hurts so bad. My spirit is crushed. Will I ever trust again? Will I ever love again? Trust me, you'll love again. There's more to the story. More than the death. Death is so final. And death is dark and heavy while the smell of death lingers. And dying is so cruel. Unless it is death that is dying. Now that would be a twist, but can that be? Can death die? How can death die? Would that mean that death has surrendered to life? In this, you are correct. There is more to the story. Well, I saw a movie a couple of years ago with an unusual twist. I don't like to necessarily use movie illustrations lots because I'm not trying to endorse or, you know, say you should watch this movie or that movie, but I did watch this movie, and there's plenty of movies like it. Uh, a real popular movie several years ago called The Sixth Sense. It was kind of similar to that movie a little bit, but there was this, this girl in this movie who... Um, she was a schizophrenic, and she was kind of crazy, and everybody told her she was crazy. So anyway, she happens to see next door, at the next door house, she sees some nefarious things going on with the neighbor. And so she has to tell everybody, hey, the next door neighbor's kind of a bad person and doing some evil things. And of course, everybody looks at her and looks at the neighbor, who's just like this ideal neighbor, and thinks, well, she's crazy, you know? And so that's the, kind of the plot of the movie, convincing them that actually... She isn't crazy, and the neighbor is actually doing some bad things. As the story unfolds at the end of the movie, they arrest the neighbor, and she gets taken away, and she was doing some pretty bad things. But what's going on in the movie is, throughout the movie, this, this girl, Rain, is having interactions with her mother and her father and this guy she meets at school called Caleb. He's kind of a friend, kind of a boyfriend, but not really, and um, having interactions with them. And the twist at the end of the movie that... When you see this twist, it's, you know, it puts all, everything makes sense then in the movie. It's like, oh, that's what's going on. You know how movies are. And what you find out is three years earlier, Rain's mother had killed herself and she was dead. And so she was dead the whole time. And so any conversations with her and her mom or any, any conversations between her fights between her mom and dad, well, her mom really wasn't there. It was all in her imagination. When she introduced uh, her mom to her, this guy Caleb from school, it was all in her imagination. And the key, the point here, as we tie this back into Easter this morning, is that when you understood that her mom was dead and the reality of that, it made the whole movie made sense. And in a, in a similar vein, when we understand the death of Christ, right? We understand the death of Christ and how that all operated and what it all meant. Everything in our life can begin to fall in place and begin to make sense of those things that sometimes we can be a little confused on. And, of course, we, we know the, the, great, the great rest of the story, as we'll get into it today, right? The more of the story is that Jesus died, but he's not dead because he rose again. That's the reality of the resurrection, and we will get into that today. And when you understand that he rose again, well, then, again, everything in your life can take on new meaning and new significance, and 
That's exactly where we're going. Here's the, 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 the point. When the disciples got it, so the disciples are in this three-day period here and they just don't understand what happened, but when they got it, when they understood, oh, Christ, he died, but he rose again, then everything in the past made sense and everything in their future took on a new significance. I think that's significant for our lives as well. But he can make sense of all the stuff in our life, his death and his life, can make sense and can give us an incredible, incredible significance. So today, we're in this, we've been in this series now. It's our last message in this series, The More of the Story. I have really enjoyed this series. But we've looked at some of the memorable moments from Jesus' life, some of the miracles and the signs that he performed. And we've looked at them, and then we've looked deeper. Like, what's the more of the story? What, what, what's what's kind of hidden below the surface? What's kind of the phraseology and the symbology and the things that God wants us to see that you don't just pick up at first glance. And so we have had a great time doing that. It's been interesting. Today, the more of the story takes us to the more of the Easter story. And specifically, we want to talk about, you know, the more of the Easter story, in, in a sense, is living out the Easter story. That's what it's intended for, the Easter story, the resurrection. It's intended to be our story, that we would go and we would live it up. Now, as we said in this series, Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. He's going to do that again today. We're going to make the gospel so clear today, no one can walk out the door and uh, not know if they have an uh, eternal relationship with Christ. It is so absolutely clear. But to, to get into the more of the story, we have to back up first, and we have to go back to the cross, and, and uh, that's where we're going to start this morning. We have to back up. And, and on the cross, as I understand it, when the crucifixion unfolds, I think this is pretty, pretty biblical. There's only one disciple that's there. Some might have been off in the distance, but there's one disciple there that watches it unfold. And one disciple will hear the final words of Jesus. And his final words are, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are like the two last phrases that he says. And so John's going to hear that, and John's going to go back to the disciples. And this is kind of the question that I was confronted with this week as I was studying and thinking. So when he goes back and he explains it all to them, and he says he's hanging on the cross, and right in that last moment he says, it is finished. And he died. It's like, I wonder, how would the disciples hear that? What would they say Jesus was communicating in that moment? How, how would they understand this reality now that, that it is finished? And I think to the disciples, it is finished meant Jesus had died and the mission was over. Oh, and by the way, the last three years or two years, whatever, two plus years, was a waste of time. It's like, what was that all about? Like, okay. And I think that is exactly what they heard. When they heard it is finished, they heard, well, the mission is over. And it's a pretty significant, it's, it's, it's something pretty significant that is hanging over their heads. And they are totally blindsided by this. They didn't see this coming at all. In fact, my original title was The Ending You Never Saw Coming. And, and that's weaving, woven into the story as well. But, but here's the reality. When Jesus died, they died. Like when Jesus died, they just died. It's like our life is pretty much over. And I want us today, what I want us to do is go back first into those, into those three days with the disciples and I want us to consider their reality. It's a false reality, but I want to consider their reality. What did that reality look like? How did it impact them? And we'll see why it's important that we go back and look at that in a minute. But instead of living the truth, they are living a lie for these three days. And I have five simple words today that will help us uncover some of the emotions, some of the um, attitudes, some of their, uh, what they're kind of feeling inside, 
what's going on in their world in these three days. The reality, of course, is that Jesus is dead. Here's our big idea today. The story is finished. It's just not over. The story is finished. When Jesus said it is finished, the story is finished. It's just not over. And they have to come to terms with what that means, and we do as well, and we will do that this morning as we go through this message. This is what the disciples need to learn, and we need to know the story is finished. It is just not over. So five words, and we're going to start here. The disciples' three-day false reality, and it starts with this. It's built on this premise of death, right? Because their premise is all working from the standpoint that Jesus is in the grave. He has died. The mission is over. And yeah, and so the first word is darkness, spiritual darkness. Like death, Jesus' death would equal spiritual darkness. And in the Bible, darkness is associated with death. Like, and on one hand, like that would be the absence of God. Like, darkness can be the absence of God. Why is hell utter darkness? Because God will make his absence uh, a reality from hell. He won't be in hell. Like, he is everywhere, true, but when it comes to hell, he's going to purposely not be there. It will be a place of eternal darkness. In, in contrast, the Bible tells us in Revelations that in eternity in heaven, there's no sun. Why? Because God's there, and, and God lights up everything, and God Almighty, we don't need a sun because we have God. Darkness can also, though, represent the presence of sin. And this is clearly seen and woven into the, the Eastern narrative. What you have to understand is Jesus is on the cross from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But at 12 o'clock, something significant happens. We heard the disciples talk about it earlier, right? God turned out the lights. At 12 o'clock, God turned out the lights. And I think, actually, in that little dramatic reading that we opened with, Peter's right. That's when hell descended. That wasn't just darkness, that was, that was hell descending on the earth in, in a sense. Uh, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over in Luke it says this, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And so why was there darkness? Because the sun failed. Which we know this is not like a natural phenomenon. It's a supernatural phenomenon. We know it couldn't be, a, couldn't be an eclipse actually because it was Passover. So that's just kind of an interesting tidbit. That this was a supernatural thing. I believe God brought darkness over the whole earth. From, from, from 12 o'clock until 3 o'clock. And it signifies this reality of spiritual darkness. When Jesus, the light of the world, took on the darkness of sin. And now he can relate to us. He knows what it's like to live in sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, people ask sometimes, well, okay, I understand that happened, but, but well, why? Like, why did someone need to die for sin? I thought about that this week. I thought, well, let's consider you for a minute. Let's say that someone goes online and they steal your identity online and they run up a, a huge debt. They steal a bunch of money from you and they ruin your online reputation. And so you wouldn't be happy with that, right? And so you'd want them to pay you back and you'd want you know, justice and you'd want them to be punished adequately. And, but here's the problem. What if they can't pay you back? What if they, well, of course, they can't restore your online, rep, they can't restore your credit score and your credit, you know, reputation, and they can't fix up your identity again. Would you be happy? I don't think any of us would be happy. You know, here's what happened. God created Adam and Eve, created you and me in his image, gave us his image. And then we went out and we sinned against him. 
We sullied his image. We allowed Satan to steal our identity. Now, there's two choices. One, we can be eternally separated from God. That's our choice. Or two, we can allow God to do something about it. And he did. He went to the cross. He paid for our sins. And he took back our identity from Satan. Now we can find our identity in him. Like we were originally created in the garden to be. And so you can see the reality that payment for sin is a necessity. Or we're lost and separated from God for all of eternity. That's the simple reality. Pretty powerful stuff there to stop. So this is darkness. It's like the absence of God. It's the presence of sin. But for the disciples in these three days, here's the best way to understand darkness. It's a lack of understanding. Right? Like, have you, for instance, have you ever been in the dark? Right? It's like, ah, what's going on? And sometimes we're in the dark and like, God, I'm in the dark. Will you let me know what's going on? It's like, yeah. This is the disciples' reality. In fact, going back to Luke 18, this is shortly before the events of the crucifixion unfold. Maybe, I don't know, month, two, three, I don't know, something like that maybe. And the 12, and taking the 12, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what, he, what was said. Three things in there that are really significant. First of all, Jesus is very clear what's going to happen to him. They're going to flog me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to crucify me. This is what's going to happen. Number two, disciples did not understand anything that was said. Right over their head. And number three, God like made it go over their head. And that's the thing that might, you might say, well, why would... Why would God tell them if he's not going to let them understand, right? And I think part of the reason is that the reason God didn't let them understand, God doesn't always tell us the big picture, does he? God does not always tell us the big picture in life. There are things in life that he knows we cannot handle. And so he keeps things from us that we cannot process spiritually in our hearts or handle emotionally in our lives. So God... Told them, but he didn't tell them. He didn't let them understand because, you know, they might have tried to stop Jesus or they might have objected or they, you know, they wouldn't have understood. They couldn't have processed it all at this point in their spiritual life. Which brings us to the other question, then why did God tell them at all? Like, why tell them at all? You know, why, why do you think God told them then? For right now. So that in these three days, these words could start to resonate in their head. And we'll see this in the text later on, that it starts to resonate with some of his followers that, oh, he did tell us this. He did tell us that. So the point being here, the disciples for three days are in the dark because they do not understand what has taken place on the cross and that the resurrection is on the horizon. And as we said last week, there is clarity in the cross. If you understand the cross, there'll be clarity in your life that you won't have otherwise. It's a powerful thing. So the first word this morning is spiritual darkness, and then there is dread. Jesus' death could equal dread. And I know we could use the word fear here. I like the word dread. It starts with the letter D. It kind of fits a little more memorably this morning. But I like dread because it's a heavier word, right? Like fear, okay, I'm scared, but dread. In fact, I was trying to think of a definition for dread. Here's my definition for dread this morning. It's darkness and fear combined. Darkness and fear, there you got dread, like... And here are the disciples, filled with fear, filled with dread. 
John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And just understand, this is that, that night. They've been told by the, by the women he's risen from the dead and they're still locked up and holed up and afraid. Filled with dread and, and, and Jesus comes, peace be with you. But they're there because of the fear of the Jews. And I think it's interesting, this, this idea of fear, where fear comes from and how fear can come from a lack of understanding. When you're in the dark, it can be scary, right? It's like, what's going on, Lord? I don't know. I might have cancer. I might not have cancer. I might lose my job. I might not lose my job. Sometimes we're a little scared of the things we don't know and it can cause fear and I think there's a crazy thing here because we want to be in control. We're not in control. It's scary. It's, 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 it's kind of like this, isn't it? <clears throat> we want to be in control, and if we aren't, it's scary. Yet when we are in control and everything depends on us, that can also cause a lot of angst, worry, and stress. True peace comes from being content when you're not in control. That's hard. That can be very hard. And so I wonder kind of what fears they have. Maybe will the Jews and Romans come knocking on our door? Will they come for us? How will they respond if they do come for him? Remember back in our God's Resolution series earlier in the year, we said that at one point the disciples were willing to die for, or willing to live for Jesus. And after the crucifixion and resurrection, they were willing to die for him. Well, right now they're in between. They're in that three-day span. And it's like... Jesus isn't there so they can't live for him and he hasn't risen from the dead so they can't die for him. It's like, what do we do? What do we do if they come knocking on our door? Do I stand up for him? Do I defend him? Do I support him? What does that look like? And you think of the dread. And then just the dread they would have about tomorrow. You ever have that, that dread like, I just dread getting up on a Monday morning ride or something like that? You dread the day coming at you, the week before you, the job in front of you. You just dread certain things and you're in the dark and you dread and it's, it's scary. And there's this kind of the self-perpetuating reality with the disciples, right? I mean, think about it. It's scary to be in the dark. They're in the, they're, it's scary to be in the dark and they're in the dark and it's scary. And yet when they're scared, what do they do? They go into the dark. Like they go in and shut the doors and lock themselves in their house in their house because they're scared. And, and so they're, they're in the dark and they're putting themselves in the dark and we often can do this, these kind of self-perpetuating cycles we get ourselves into emotionally and spiritually. We need to break free from them. Here's the, the next word, doubt. Jesus' death equals doubt. And they're filled with a lot of doubt right now. There's a lot of unanswered questions for them right now. They're, they're kind of consumed with what is next. Again, resurrection night. Here's what it says. Jesus comes to them. Thomas isn't there, of course. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts? arise in your heart and you can hear that and think that's kind of a rhetorical question you know i don't think it's just rhetorical though like why are there doubts in your heart and and he's gonna we'll we'll deal with this in a little while how we deal with doubt in our life but they have these doubts i know i've said this before but adam and eve when they're in the garden they commit the first sin we always focus on 
Satan is the father of lies and he lies to them and tells them lies and they buy into those lies. But the reality is there is something that preceded those lies and that was doubt. Like before he told the first lie, he cast the first doubt. He got them to doubt. He got them to second guess God and second guess God's goodness and second guess God's word and and like, well, maybe. They doubted and then they bought the lie and then they bit into the fruit. And I'm not going to imply that, that, that doubt is sin, but doubt can certainly lead to sin. If we don't deal with our doubts, it can lead us to sin. It can lead us astray. And we need to be aware of that. So what kind of doubts are growing in the disciples' hearts here? Maybe they're doubting God. Maybe they're doubting their faith. Maybe they're doubting themselves and their judgment. Maybe they're doubting the last three years, the miracles of Jesus and even Jesus himself. I, I, like, I, kinda, I like to watch this uh, little thing on YouTube, these, these, these just for laugh gags they do on people. You know, they do little things on people. And, and, and like the other day, I watched one the other day, and uh, somebody's driving down the road and they stop and there's a big obstruction in the road and they have to stop and somebody comes out with a flag and, and uh, explains something's in the road and they ask the person to f- wave the flag to stop traffic and they're going to run down and use the portage on. And so they run down and they use the portage on and the guy's waving the flag and a cop pulls up and a cop pulls up and they're having a dialogue and he's, he's explaining why he's waving the flag because there's an obstruction in the road and they turn around and they move the obstruction. And then he's trying to figure the obstruction out. And he says, well, this guy that went down and got on the porta potty told me to, oh, they'd moved the porta potty on him. <laughs> and I love those, you know, I don't know why. But I just love watching that person stand there with their face and they're like, am I going crazy? Am I losing my mind? You know, what happened here? And I think the disciples might have been a little that way. Like, didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead? Didn't he do all those miracles? Didn't he say all these grandiose things? And now he's dead. How about the word then? Oh, so Satan is the father of doubts. Yell at me if I forget to click ahead here. Satan is the father of doubts. Here's our next word, Jesus. Death equals despair. So we go from darkness to dread to doubt to despair. And, and what is despair? But it's the loss of hope. And the disciples have, at this point, I believe they've lost all hope. They have no more hope. In Luke 24, two of the followers are traveling along. And uh, they express it this way. They said, we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. We had hope. We, in, in other words, they had hope at one point, but they don't have hope now because Jesus is buried. He's six feet under and their hope is dead. And here's the thing. Think about this statement here, right? To know how deep their despair was, you have to understand how high their hopes were. And they had high hopes for Jesus. Like he was Deuteronomy 18, the one like, Moses, he was Zechariah 9, the Messiah, who came in riding on the donkey saying, I am the great deliverer. I am the great king of kings for the Jewish people. He was supposed to lead them into the fullness of the promised land. In fact, the reason he came was to sit on a throne and rule, not hang on a cross and die. And so if we were in their shoes, I think we too would be filled with a lot of despair. Now, there's an interesting picture, though, that emerges out of the story that I find really fascinating. Because if you read through the story, you will find out that, that the, the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb there, like when, when Jesus is resurrected, they're, they're kind of like knocked into a trance. And they don't, you know, and they come to their senses, and they run in town, and they tell the chief priests, and they tell all the religious establishment what happened. They bribe them 
They actually bribed them to, you know, to, to tell a lie that they came and stole the body. And so they turned the resurrection kind of into a conspiracy theory. And what's fascinating is it's almost like, well, here it is. Yeah, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They go back, they tell the chief priests. And, and here's the, the reality of what I want you to see here is the chief priests seemed to fear that Jesus may have resurrected. In fact, they had guards there because they put guards there because someone come and, came and said, we need to put guards outside the tomb. He said he was going to rise in three days. I mean, they, they kind of tend to get it. And then you go to the women, right? And the women, they're at the tomb. And as they were frightened and bowed uh, their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So the chief priests, the, the, the religious establishment kind of gets it. Uh, the women seem to get it. They tell it to the, to the uh, disciples then. Women seem to believe that Jesus has indeed resurrected. They then go find the disciples, tell the disciples. Uh, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. And what, what I find so fascinating is that those who were closest to Jesus and most devastated by his death and had the most despair had the hardest time believing that he rose again. There's probably a correlation there. Like, they had so much despair, they couldn't even believe that he really had risen again. The women got it. His enemies got it. His closest followers. Yeah, it did, didn't seem to make sense. The ones who were closest to Jesus and who were the most devastated were the ones who had the hardest time believing. I find that really fascinating and interesting. And the last word then is Jesus' death equals defeat. Jesus added all up, the darkness, the dread, the doubt, the despair, it all leads to defeat. They are defeated. They look at the situation, the cross, the tomb, they look at themselves and they are consumed with defeat. To the disciples, when Jesus said, it is finished then, what did it mean? It meant they had lost. It meant the mission was over, Jesus died, the mission is over, and now it means Jesus died and they had lost, and they don't know how he had lost. And while his death was their death, his defeat was also their defeat. Now again, as we noted, this is nothing more than a false reality. None of this is true. That's the, that's the crazy thing. None of this is true. What they need is a resurrection reality. And instead of thinking the mission is over, what they need to understand is the mission is what? It's just getting started. Like, we're just, we're just getting this thing going. I mean, that was just the warm-up stage. And I think that is really, really fascinating. Again, the story is finished. It's just not over. It's finished. That's what Jesus said. It's just not over. And that takes us to the more of the story. And we leave behind the cross and we look down to the empty tomb. And just briefly here, 
Let's look at the more of the story, right? Looking ahead and living in a resurrection reality. What does it look like? Well, it is basically this. Death has surrendered to life. And now our premise is not a premise of death, but a premise of life. 1 Peter 3, 18. We read this last week. What a great verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And understand the implication implications here that Jesus died he did but you know the death that that saved you is not his physical death but that he took on your sin that he took on physical death that he that he took on hell and on those three hours on the cross when it got dark that's what was that was what was was going on and so he says it is finished at the end of those three hours because it is and so when he dies physically he is alive in the spirit here is how you can understand what took place and why this works Every one of us is born in spiritual death. We have a spirit that is dead to God. We're born spiritually dead. We need to be made alive in Christ. Jesus took on our spiritual death. If any of us die spiritually dead, we're that way for eternity. We are spiritually dead to God for eternity. Jesus Christ took on our spiritual death, took on our sin. He took on our hell for us. And when he died, he was alive in the spirit. So he took on spiritual death but it didn't kill him. Whoa. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the resurrection. Look at this verse again here, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That was the purpose. So he could bring you and me to God so that he could make our spirits alive. Jesus' resurrection can be my resurrection. The disciples are all wrapped up in his death is my death. It's like, well, it kind of is. It really is. But even more, his resurrection is your resurrection. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He'll give you spiritual life and take away your spiritual death. And for all of eternity now, you are a child of God. That's the gospel. It's not how many good works you do. It's not how good of a life you live. We can never do enough good works to earn our way to heaven. There's only one way. That's the Easter story. We need the Spirit of Christ to come in us, make us alive, resurrect us, take care of our spiritual death. And here's what is really beautiful. I want you to know what's going on. See, in his three years of earthly ministry, Jesus prepared his followers for what? The three days he was in the grave. That's what he did. He told them all the, they didn't get it at the time, but he's telling them so that in these three days, they can remember, oh, he told us this. Oh, he told us that. And this statement will make a lot more sense in a few minutes. But let's look briefly here then at this idea of a paradigm of life, a resurrection reality. John 1, 4, 5, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Note the correlation between life and light and the correlation earlier between death and darkness, right? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus' life is light. Like we have light. We are filled with light. New Age likes to talk about we're like light beings, you know. It's like it's kind of new agey. But the truth is we are. Because we have Christ, we are filled with light. John 8, 12, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of, excuse me, life. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain 
in darkness. God wants to take you out of the darkness and bring you into the light. Now let me just say something about that. That because you have light, it doesn't mean that you're never like in the dark and you're never like, well, I don't understand what God's doing, right? We're sometimes in that state of not understanding things, right? But here's the beauty of it. Even when I'm in the dark and I don't quite understand, I got light. Woo, isn't that good? Even when I'm in the dark, I got light. And I can trust that light. How about this? Jesus' life is peace. Like trade in that dread and that fear for some peace. John 20, 19, again, he finds them down there. And I, I just love, I just love this, this, what he does here. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And he just invades their, I love you, he just invades their space. He just passes out of those grave clothes. He just passes through the wall. He just invades their space and says, peace be with you. Because I'm here, peace be with you. Trade in your fear and your doubt for peace. And let me just tell you that if the spirit of Christ has been raised in your life, the Prince of Peace lives in your heart. Peace be with you, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through. That's the beauty. Jesus' life, how about faith? Jesus' life equals faith. His life equals faith. This is a great one. You know, we think about doubt, right? And what's the opposite of doubt? People often think the opposite of doubt is faith. That's not. The opposite of doubt is belief. Like, I believe this. And if I doubt, then I'm not sure I believe that. I'm challenging those beliefs. How I handle my, how I, how I handle my doubts is with faith. But look at this verse. I just love this, okay? So there's a transition, transformation going on in the dis- disciples here after the resurrection. They're starting to get it. And when he had said this, Luke 24, again, this is resurrection night. They're in that same room again. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? What does that mean? They disbelieved for joy and were marveling. What does that mean? Well, it means that they used to, they used to have doubts, like they just couldn't believe it could happen. And, and now their doubts are giving way, giving way to their belief that it did happen, but it's just too good to be true. It's like, this is too good to be true. Like, like yeah, I think it happened, Peter. I think it, but it's just too good to be true. Could that, could that really, could, I mean, and, and I think that is just, I just love that. I just love that part of the story. It's just too good to be true. Now, there's an interesting lesson here about our faith and our doubt as well. And we've talked about this really uh, earlier this year. Now, faith is the assurance. I think the word there is uh, hypostasis. I'm probably murdering that word because I'm going by memory. It's the assurance or the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that word assurance is like, it's this idea that, that my faith is like a foundation that is standing under me. I love that. It's a fa- foundation standing under me. It's not that I'm standing on a foundation. There is a foundation that is standing under me and supporting me. And the emphasis is on that foundation. That's the beauty. So I have beliefs, like I believe things, like God loves me, God's on my side, God cares for me, God knows what's best for me, and sometimes I doubt those things, right? Sometimes I'm like Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I'm all alone here. How long? How far? 
How much? And so how do I handle those doubts? I handle them with faith, this foundation that is standing under me. This foundation that's standing under me. Here it is. Faith is the foundation when I'm tempted to doubt. Faith is the temptation. I'll show you what it looks like here. I'm going to show you what it looks like in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul makes this, oh, what a beautiful passage here. Listen to what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The Christian faith is built on what? The cross and the resurrection and the empty tomb. And Paul says if the tomb isn't empty, if Christ didn't resurrect, we ain't got any faith. I mean, our entire faith is, our faith is not built on love your neighbor and, and treat others, you know, really nice and do a lot of good deeds and make the world a better place. Our faith is built on the resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's the foundation that stands under me and supports me. So I go through life and I doubt sometimes. Like, Lord, what are you doing? I thought you loved me. I thought you... And all I have to do is look back to my faith. And I look back to those things and say, okay, I might be doubting his love. I might be doubting his, his, his concern. I might be doubting his choices and what he's doing in my life. But I do know this. He died on a cross and he rose again. And that's a fact. And nothing can change that my feelings, my faith is not built on my feelings. It's built on the cross and the empty tomb. That's the reality. Oh, that is so good. So incredibly good. He goes on. Jesus' life then is hope. Like, how do we handle the despair? Well, despair is not having hope. And Jesus' life gives us an incredible amount of hope. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love that. If in Christ, if you're in Christ, right? And you only have a, a worldly hope like, well, I hope I get that raise. And I hope it don't rain. I hope it's nice on Easter. I hope they treat me nice at school today. I hope that so-and-so will ask me to the prom. All our hopes, right? But we, have a, we have a hope that is a guarantee. We have a hope that is guaranteed because God doesn't lie. It's based on his word. Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is that? God's word is a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. If we have God's word, if we have God's word, we have God's guarantee. It's a hope. My hope is in his word. And he said he would die, and he said he would rise again, and he did all of that exactly 100%. And for three days, the disciples are living with despair. Why? Because they haven't realized what Jesus said and that he can't lie, and there's hope in his word. I love that. It is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. What an amazing thing. 
Of all God's promises, His greatest promise was the cross. And at the same time, our greatest hope is the resurrection. They come together in a glorious fashion in the gospel. Now think about this again from the disciples' standpoint. Three days of darkness when Jesus is in the tomb, yet what did Jesus do but fulfill His greatest promise in going to the cross? The disciples did not need to be filled with despair because there is a hope that is an anchor for our souls rooted in the fact that God always keeps his word. When they were at the most despair, they should have had the most hope because God was just keeping his word. He was just keeping his word. You know, it's, it's interesting. Jesus, we, we, traditionally Jesus died on Friday and the disciples muddled their way through Saturday and then Sunday morning he rose again. And I was going to go through this today, and I can't go. I don't have time to go through it. But I'll just tell you this. It's a fact. He died on Wednesday. And Thursday morning, Peter wakes up, and here's a... It's like someone stuck a knife in his back. And he muddles his way through Thursday. And he goes to bed Thursday night and tosses and turns and wakes up Friday morning to... It's like someone stuck a knife in his back. And he muddles his way through all of Friday. And he goes to bed and he wakes up Saturday morning, help me out. And he hears, it's like someone stuck a knife in his back. And he probably heard it on Sunday morning, although he might have woken up with the earthquake on Sunday morning. But the reality is on Sunday morning, then he has this amazing reality come to light. Listen to what Jen Wilkins writes. Our senses are powerfully memorable memory holders. Smells, tastes, sounds too. Attach themselves to memories. I imagine what kind of memory the rooster's crow evoked for Peter. Every dawn after that first terrible morning of betrayal, the proclamation of his bitter guilt would have rung afresh in his ears. Carried in the crowing would have been the memory of his colossal failure. Whatever his relationship had been with Jesus, whatever his calling, it appears to be finished. I'm going out to fish, he announces to his companions in John 21, 3. They fish all night and catch nothing, but just as day is breaking, a sound ripples across the water, a voice. The announcement is of a miracle. Try the other side of the boat. Recognition dawns. As the others haul in the fish as fast as they can, Peter hurls himself into the sea and thrashes towards shore. There sits Jesus serving up a a fresh breakfast menu. Restoration, forgiveness. It is finished. I, I wonder as the two converse, could Peter hear in the surrounding countryside the sound of roosters? I can't say, but I suspect that every morning thereafter, Peter affixed a new memory to that clarion call. The sound of homecoming, fear not, glad tidings, each day, the sound that had announced new morning guilt now spoke a better word. All hail the rooster, that fine feathered herald of forgiveness, that megaphone of new morning mercies and Jesus and and there's Peter in that moment letting go of his fear and letting go of his doubt letting go of his pain and his hurt his despair so Jesus life it is a life of victory you add it all up right you add it all up the light and the peace and the hope and the faith and everything it all adds up to a life of victory and I was thinking about this right I was thinking about the disciples reality like think about the disciples Think if they had just got it for those three days. Like if they had just understood for those three days what had really happened on the cross. You know what they could have done? They could all got together. 
They could have had a countdown clock. They could have had party streamers. They could have parked outside that tomb. And they could have said, "Woo! Sunday's coming. And they could have counted it down. And they didn't know the exact minute. They didn't know what it would look like. But they were just waiting. They were just waiting. They were just waiting for him to come. Because he was coming back on Sunday. But no, that's not where they were. They were in a false reality of defeat. They didn't have the, the reality of victory. They weren't there when that stone was rolled away. I love how Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to end with two things today. We're going to land in two places today. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to make sure no one walks out those doors and doesn't know Christ. Because it's really easy to make sure you know Christ. Remember the big idea. The story is finished. It's just not over. It was all finished on the cross. The story is just not over. It's playing out. It's playing out in your life. It's playing out in my life. So why does this matter to us? What is the more of the story for us this morning? Well, two ways we're going to land here. First, do you possess a resurrection reality? Have you been raised with Christ? That's the question everybody in this room can ask. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. There's nobody in this room that can't answer that question. Have I been raised with Christ? Not am I a good person. Do I treat others nicely? Do I? That's all well and fine. And Christ will help us do a better job of that even. But have you been raised spiritually with Christ? I've shared this the last couple of weeks, right? Before we're saved, this is our makeup. Before salvation in the flesh, I am a soul. I have a personality, a thinker, a feeler, a chooser that has a spirit that is dead to God and I live in a body. That's my reality before I come to Christ. After I come to Christ, it's, it's amazing, right? Now, now I am a Spirit that is alive to God, I am defined by Christ. Watch this here, right? That has a soul. I still have a personality, a thinker, a feeler, and chooser. Here's the key. I'm not defined by my feelings, my choices, my behaviors, my emotions, my attitudes, my personality. I'm defined by Christ, regardless of whether I fail someday or not. And I live in a body. And this is the gospel right here. For every single person, this is the gospel right here. Either your spirit is alive to God or your spirit is dead to God. Whether you're five years old, I was five years old when I made my decision. You can be 85 years old and make your decision. doesn't matter your age. There's a time and point when you simply come and you come to the point of becoming spiritual. Let me read the verse. I didn't put it on the screen. One verse here, let's listen to this verse. Romans 10, 9 and 10, two verses. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so how, how do I get my spirit alive to God? I believe, number one, I believe that I have wronged a holy God. I believe that I've sinned against God. I believe that. I believe Jesus was God who died on the cross for me, died, paid the price for my sins, and rose again. 
And then I receive his life and his forgiveness. I confess. So I believe in my heart. And then I confess with my mouth. And I say, Lord, I want to receive your life. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your spirit. I want you to come in and, 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 and do in me what you did in, you know, back when you raised yourself from the grave. I want you to raise yourself in me. I want you to give me newness of life. That's how simple it is. Right now in your seat, let me just stop and pray. Father God, for anybody right now that has never made that decision in this room, will you just, your Holy Spirit can speak to their spirit and say, you know what? I'm not living in you. I've never been raised in you. You're a really nice person. You're, you, you do a lot of good things. You treat people in the world nice. You're great at work. You're great at school, whatever. But I'm not living in you. I pray right now you'll impress upon them that they would say, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe you want to be my savior, that you died on the cross for my sins. And I'm receiving today your life and your forgiveness, asking you to come in me. Make me spiritually alive to God. Give me an eternal home in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't walk out those doors without believing and receiving. It is that simple. Last landing point this morning. Do you understand why we tell the disciples reality? It's a false reality. Do you understand why we tell it? Do you, do you get why? There's, some, there's a connection you might have missed in the story here this morning. Simple connection, it's this. We are living the disciples' story. Like their story is our story. Like we're living in those three days. We're living in between when Christ died and rose again and when he's going to return and catch us to glory. We're living in the, in the in-between time here. Just know that, just understand that. And, and the reality is their story is our story. Are we living lives of victory? Are we living a resurrection reality? That is the question. Long before the beginning of all other beginnings, God is. In a burst of creative activity, God creates the world and everything in it. Humans are designed to live inside of this unique relationship, but they choose otherwise. The law of God is broken, and the heart of God is pierced. But the story isn't over. In the fullness of time, God gives His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus comes to seek and save those who are lost, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. On the cross, God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. But the story isn't over. On the morning of the third day, the power of the living God erupts, breaking through death with the moment that will define all other moments. Perched at the edge of heaven, the angels stand in awe as one of their own rolls away the stone that's guarding the body of Jesus. As if anything can guard Jesus. 
he walks out of the tomb alive. He is victorious. He is conquering death and rendering the grave unnecessary. He is living and moving and breathing as only the risen Son of God can. But the story isn't over. We are, every one of us, searching and hoping and longing for life. It's a desire that's been deposited into our souls by the very same God who spoke it all into existence. And it's this exact life that the resurrection of Jesus invites us into. So bring your hopes, your regrets, your successes and your failures. Bring your doubts, your joys, your fears and your dreams. Be resolute and unwilling to settle for anything less than the abundant life of the risen King. Because truly, if the story isn't over, then what happens next might just change everything.